0: Welcome to the Digital and Chemicals Podcast. Hey, my name is Jeff Houghton. This is the only podcast with a focus on digitization in the chemical industry. We are brought to you by Agilis Chemicals, a commerce platform for the chemical industry where you can grow faster with your own digital commerce portal. Today's episode is a great one. It features an interview with Jeremy Kagan, where we discuss digital marketing. Here's a quick bio about Jeremy. Jeremy Kagan is a professor of digital marketing at Columbia Business School and faculty director of the Digital Marketing Strategy Executive Education Program and teaches graduate and executive education classes. He's written books and textbooks on the subject. He's had his own companies and is also a speaker and corporate trainer. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeremy Kagan. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jeremy Kagan. Jeremy, how are you?
1: Great, Good morning. I hope you can hear me okay. Yeah, we're gonna I hear you great.. My biggest fear is that uh, we'll start talking and somebody will ask for us to go back to that song loop. It was quite catchy, you know, we' <laughs> want to do a little dancing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of those earworm songs you hear on the radio where at first you're like, hey i kind of like this and after a while you're like please make it stop please just make it stop and luckily we made it stop and brought you on so uh let's see jeremy let's start with the basics i i kind of read some of your background but if you could kind of illustrate some more of of, of your background
1: well uh I did write the first textbook uh, and, and probably the, the only uh, textbook, which is why I can call it the best in digital marketing, uh, which makes my mother very proud. And the irony of writing a textbook on digital marketing is totally not lost on me. So I'm <laughs> laughing right along with you. Um, but I think the, the important thing is I have been teaching digital marketing as long as there's been something about digital marketing. So the, the field has only existed for you know professionally for 10, 15 years since the emergence of the ability to really, um, you know, put your advertising and marketing programs online with the growth of, of the internet. It's hard for us to remember that 20 years ago, there were no iPhones, there was none of this stuff. So really what we're talking about is the, the sudden sort of, you know, there's a, a quote that uh, the future happens, uh, you know, slowly and then all at once. And so I think we're at that phase where we're realizing, you know, in some ways we have, uh, you know, wrist communicators and video phones. We do live in the future as we imagined it. And now we're trying to bring all of the rest of our very uh, normal business lives forward to that future.
0: Yeah. I mean, like the internet, like you said, you know, we've we've all been using it in various capacities for years, but like it was, it was such a different thing. It was email for a long time and, and some text heavy websites, and then it grows and then we're on phones and now we're like, it feels like it's uh, this monster to try to, keep up with, but there's there's strategies involved that that can make you keep up with it. So what's the difference, would you say, kind of between if someone comes from a traditional marketing background, I know there's there's, there's similarities, but what are some of the similarities and differences with with digital marketing?
1: Well, it used to be uh, digital marketing has so many different, you know, things that are different. In fact, when we, when we t- start talking about this in a traditional MBA environment, we actually start, uh, the first class is really about the four Ps, which Anyone here who's ever touched marketing probably remembers way back in college, where we talked about you know, price, you know, pl- uh, place, product, and, and you know we are look and promotion is a fourth P by the way, and we're looking at this and saying well these things are very different in a digital world, and for a lot of us this is actually an insane opportunity because in the past there was really two ways we could do marketing we had these huge marketing campaigns national in scope with Super Bowl commercials and magazine ads. And we had the yellow pages, right, for small businesses. And there wasn't a lot of uh, day, you know, anything but daylight in between. Um, you really had uh, limited options and they were mass market options. So if you were selling something that was more specialty, more niche product, more targeted audience, it was really hard to find those kinds of potential customers in a world of mass media. Now what we can do is if we can talk to our customers in a way that resonates with them. Not only can we find them very specifically through social media platforms, through search platforms and others, but they can actually find us. And customer discovery now is not about having a rundown to the library or sending the research team into some massive database. It's about, you know, going online, going to Google and all the things we do as consumers that are actually also powerful business tools.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's interesting because marketing traditionally in the past was uh standing on a street corner and shouting this is what i got and now you can say i see the people walking that i need to i need to reach they're interested in, in what i have And there's this the discoverability factor you you talk about so does that does that then do you see we all know google that sort of stuff but do you see that applying in a b2b world oh absolutely absolutely i mean the first thing first of all you know we sometimes forget
1: that even if we're still doing all the traditional marketing things we we've done in the past, and we should, in most cases, if they're working for us, so we should go, you know, the pandemic is hopefully going to be coming to a a slow and rolling end, but that means we may have the opportunity to go to industry conferences again, or be involved in things like that. And those are still great things, but you know, if you, um, if you have lived near any downtown area where you sometimes see people standing out in these crazy outfits or handing out free samples, In central New York, I'll I'll sometimes walk past a local square and they'll be handing out a free sample of a new drink. And you might say, well, that's the the oldest form of marketing in the book. Taste our product, see what you think. And they'll hand you a little paper coupon. But you know what we see a massive increase in when somebody does something really, really, really old school and, and real world like that? There's a huge spike in traffic to their website. There's a huge spike in searches on Google for that product. And this is where discoverability in, in, in digital is such a critical piece. If nothing else, you have to leverage all the things you're doing anyway. That small investment can capture all the interest and excitement you're, you've generated over the years with your brand and with your demand generation and your sales teams. Uh, it's a really powerful tool to support what you're doing as well as for newer generations, it's their go-to way of discovery and, and finding things. Now, if you can just think uh, for, we always say don't do a focus group in your head. Uh, but if you have a bunch of, uh, you know, friends and and kids, you probably can see if they if you look at the younger generation that their go-to thing is to check their phone. So if you imagine they're doing that for everything, not just you know where to have a lunch, but their biggest problems, anything that comes up. So this is our first stop, and and for many of us, it's hard to pry the phone out of our hands at the end of the day. So it may be our last stop before going to bed. You can reach people in places that. know, used to be much more formal. And now
0: we have that option to get to them where they
1: are and where they're doing their, you know, their deepest work.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting to say that, because that is, I live a very integrated life in that way, like where, if I'm shopping, and I'm in a brick and mortar store, I'm also looking up the reviews online. And we we do, we do both of those things all the time. So that's interesting what you say, like, do your traditional marketing, but then do your digital marketing in a very, focused sort of way. So do you find that this sort of this sort of stuff is is relevant for, I mean, a lot of folks are watching here in, in this industrial field of, of chemicals and manufacturers. Do you find that, that those it, advantages still apply?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's actually, you know, you, you raise a great point. A lot of times everyone says, well, I understand, you know, digital is a big revolution, but not in my business. Nobody I know is digital or, you know, and so on and so forth. And you, you might be surprised, but uh, not to put anybody here on the spot, but let's let's talk about people who are really smart, right? And you'd think they'd be really advanced, but they do this all the time and it's like doctors. Doctors and medical professionals, they're, they're always saying, well, you know, my, my business is pretty traditional and we've gotta be very protective of our information. And of course they really do. It's health information, et cetera. And they might even say, well, nobody really does, uh, you know, does any digital research. And what do they do when they need uh, the, the name of a vendor? They either look themselves on their computer or their phone, or they tell their medical office assistant or someone. So it's not always the person who is making the decisions who even knows that ch- the choices that they're brought, that their team of researchers bring back to them are always based on digital as well. And the other thing I, I would try to point out is everybody is a person first. And the largest and fastest growing groups on most social media are grandparents, believe it or not, seniors. And the reason they're going is because that's where the pictures of their grandkids are. So we've all been drawn into social media, usually by pictures of friends and loved ones, but we all are people first. That means the same person who's that senior executive uh, at Big Muckety Muck Co that you really want to reach uh, as a potential sales prospect is also on those platforms, just like you checking out last month, you know, last weekend's barbecue or graduation photos or whatever the current thing is. So you have to be very aware that, you know, the, that a company is made up of individuals who have their own individual behaviors and what was the last time you met someone who you'd want as a customer that didn't have a smartphone
0: yeah kind of a yeah, rhetorical that's, question right that's an interesting that's an interesting uh insight though and in, you think of these big industry and and layers of management and structure and and the, the the product they're shipping and all that stuff but it's still this person that's making this choice and how are they doing it they're doing it on digital and they're addicted to their phones and wish they didn't work on them as much as they are but here they are because we're all doing it so you know they say in digital world content is king like get content out there get content out there get content out there so for me like in the entertainment industry that's easy in terms of like it's a straight line. That, that's that's videos, that's whatever. What does that mean for folks watching that are in this industrial space? Well, See, there's a couple of
1: points wrapped up in there. So let me break that down because it's absolutely true. We've got a world where everyone is digital first. And in fact, the choices we make are going to be almost limited to the ones that we can find and discover online. So think about it this way. It's a very mundane example. But if you're thinking about going out to a restaurant and you want to make a reservation using, let's say, OpenTable or something like that. If the restaurant isn't on that directory, it's essentially invisible in your suite of choices. So if you're thinking, well, I don't need to rush into digital, et cetera, having a website isn't enough. You have to be discoverable. And so we'll talk about content in just a second. But if you are not one of the choices that can be found simply and easily with the information needed, you simply are basically invisible. And the research has shown that people don't you know, there's a group of people doing research online. They don't even look past that for other alternatives. They're not saying there's probably a slightly uh, you know, old school supplier that's just as good with a paper list I can request a brochure from. That's invisible to them. So if you believe that new customers are important, and some of those customers, if not most of them, are either going to be your younger, more digital first generation, or have assistants or research teams that do, you're going to be invisible to them. You would never start a restaurant these days and not make sure you had your business listed at least online in a directory, and at the very least, you know, m- make it accessible and discoverable. Your menu, all your offerings, the hours of operation. So why wouldn't you do that today, even in a bit in any business? So that's the first thing. And I, is that you know is that clear? I think that you're invisible if you're not online, and that includes being mobile optimized. That includes having all your product information being discovered. That's the, uh, the other thing is we're talking about a world where essentially we're talking about discovery and sharing. And this is how customers can find us. They don't need to go to the big blue directory of industry suppliers anymore. That is now the internet. And the way we discover things online is pretty detailed, but it's essentially two things, content and other people sharing it, keywords and links, right? That's how Google became Google. They make $500 million a day because they're very good at this. And this is really what we have to do is make sure that our content is discoverable for any question or or search or discovery query that might come up for a potential customer. So this doesn't just mean an ingredients list. It doesn't just mean a very specific things for someone who knows what they want to get. If they know exactly what the product is, they may find you. They also need to know the content around that. I mean, you're probably familiar with the concept of the marketing funnel. You know, we start at the top of the funnel with a huge amount of people who aren't even aware we exist. And we have to present to them as a solution for the generalized problem they have, especially if it's something new or exciting. They don't even know that the possibility to use this product exists. So they have to discover it. So if I'm thinking of you know, non-stick coding for X, like that's a more chemistry oriented uh, you know, kind of query, I may have a generalized problem of product design. I'm not even ready to buy yet but we can provide content that answers that question. And if we can provide a white paper or just an informative blog post that says that, what that does is it makes us become more of a trusted partner in the process of discovering a solution to my industrial problem. Then when I'm ready to buy, of course, the brand that helped me along that journey is gonna be at least part of the solution set and maybe uh, you know, have a little bit of an edge because they're a trusted expert advisor. Is that clear?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Like in the sense of um, like, yes, have your products, but if you are providing information that helps in that whole process, you're building trust. And it seems like what you're, would you agree with this? I find this for myself personally, that like when it comes to websites or how, how easy websites are, what they look like. Um, like if I go to a, a site, but it's not mobile optimized on my phone, it communicates something to me. It seems like there's subtext communication going on in how things look, how easy they are. Like if there's a bunch of, if we're used to using Amazon, but now we're using some tool that has a bunch of different hoops to go through. And then I'm printing off a PDF. Like, it seems like all those things have some subtext communication with them. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have to make it as easy as possible. I mean, think about when you called for customer
1: service and they, they gave you that recording. Your call is important to us. Your wait time is one hour and 45 minutes. And you think to yourself, how important can I really be, right? So the message, for better or for worse, we're being judged to the standard of the best in the business. You know, Amazon is a trillion dollar company because they've perfected the way to get us to buy stuff. And if we are being judged by that standard, you know, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, 100% translated, but we have to hold ourselves to what's expected. Uh, sadly, as industrial, uh, you know, players uh, in chemistry, in the chemical industry might understand the consumer players. Now, the standards of consumer purchasing are now expected that friendliness, that ability to discover thing, people aren't going to jump through as many hoops as they would in the past when they had no choice. The ease of use is basically the welcome mat, right? You want that, and and by the way, your comment about mobile. Some research shows that more than 50% of people will never go back to a website if it's not mobile friendly, meaning that you have just gotten your one chance to piss people off and done it. So essentially you need to provide information. And this is where sometimes people say, well, I have a website. Well, yeah, it hasn't been updated in five years. The information's out of date and everything you really want you have to you know, download as a PDF or worse. You've put obstacles in the way of me informing myself. Whereas the best websites are actually giving away information for free, essentially, in lots of different formats. They're chopping it up and making it available in whatever social media format you may prefer. So if it's you know, uh, someone who's using LinkedIn, they can find uh, extensive information on that, that LinkedIn profile for the company or Facebook or Instagram. And just because you personally may not use a social network, uh, we don't care what language our customers speak or you know, what currency they use. We just want them to be good customers. So why would we care where they choose to consume information? It's, like, it's almost like having an opinion about which uh, television station to show your commercial on. Our only opinion should be where potential customers are. And that's why we have to have a strategy of create content that is useful, useful or entertaining once, and push it out to where our customers are. Because they can either discover our content through search, and that's the content itself. It has to be digital and accessible, so it can't hide in proprietary formats. It has to be something Google can find. And then social requires us to be able to be there for it to be shared and spread. And if we, create, if we do manage to create something truly useful and valuable, that's when we see these phenomena of companies getting viral, where the content itself is so useful, people say, yeah, I know they made it for their own reasons, but I want to share it because my friends will actually enjoy this or find it useful. Yeah. And I I should also point out one of the myths about content is it doesn't have to be the big viral hit either. I I use the word viral as a descriptor, but it doesn't mean that a million people have to see it. In some places, if the right 200 people see it, that's all the difference. So when we think about content, we shouldn't think about audience size as much as audience quality. We wanna get our information in front of the right people. And that's really the trick.
0: So, so the right people for the folks watching, watching this right now are there in the B2B industrial space. And so how do you know, my question would be then, what channels are, are the right channels for B2B industrial space to reach those decision makers?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's, that's, first of all, the web is one
1: giant multifaceted channel, which means your information has to be accessible and searchable digitally. So the first thing is to pull it out of the you know the marketing department and the sales department where it already lives, probably. Format it, make it look nice, put it on your blog, put it on your website. That Then it can be indexed and discovered. But it's not necessarily going to be found unless it's answering a question that, that your sales team already knows, the kinds of problems that they are brought in to solve. They can create or tell you the kinds of topics that people are asking questions about. And what you have to think about in terms of this is, these are the questions they might be asking before they normally come on your radar. So it's almost like a pre-sales process. If I'm um, if I'm thinking about you know uh, solving a problem, I may not know that certain specific solutions exist. So I may type in a very general query into Google, or into you know, or I may start asking my friends, has anybody faced this challenge? And uh, look, as an entrepreneur, I can tell you there's all these founders lists, and they're on Slack, they're on email lists, and even on those sort of basic technologies. Most of the stuff that goes back and forth is, hey, I need an immigration letter. Hey, does anybody use any cool HR software that they don't hate? So those questions are being asked right now on social media. They're being asked right now through all of these ind- industry groups. This isn't a hypothetical. What you can create is the ability for someone to say, oh yes, here's a great you know piece of information I found on the subject. People share in social to look smart and to be helpful, not to meet your sales goals. So you have to create something that they're going to be able to say, here's a good reference created by your friends at ABC chemical. That's great. That's, that's totally fine because that's just putting your name on something of value.
0: Yeah. It seems like one of the things you're talking about as well is um, this integration of sales, like people and like software social that uh, working in tandem complementary. because I picked out what you said of like that, ask the sales team what people are asking about, and then that can inform your content to, to meet that question. So um, so you kind of talked about the effectiveness, the effectiveness not being, we need to reach a million people, but we need to reach the right 200 people. How do you generally try to measure that? Is it, is it just in those terms or are there other terms?
1: Well, you're gonna be able to measure it ultimately by whether you're getting people to move down that quote unquote marketing and sales funnel and become customers. But you got to think of this in more long term, especially with digital and social. This isn't a world of the old days where you know individual marketers are standing on a soapbox, whether that's giving a conference speech or uh, you know or doing a Super Bowl commercial. There's a lot of other things going on: industry groups chatting, reviews, you know, viral videos, all these things. So you have to expect not only are you out there, your competitors are out there. So the strategy has to be one of discoverability and a consistent plan to make sure that you're accessible and and findable by people who are looking for that. People will show you when they're ready uh, to move down that process by the kinds of questions they ask. And then ultimately what this can do, HubSpot is the classic example of content marketing. They're a whole company built on this. They even coined the term inbound marketing. So what they're doing is creating content and by what content you try to access, simply by giving them an email address, they know where you are in the decision process. So your sales team, they've been doing this a while. They probably can say, well, if they're asking this question, they haven't started to compare prices. If they're asking this question, they're wondering about, you know, maybe regulatory compliance and I'm making stuff up, of course. But, you know, your sales team already has a list of objections and how to deal with it. These are the things that tell them where they are along the process of closing the deal. You can match content to those things and then feed those leads along sort of teed up to the, the sales team, and not even think of it as a necessarily a sales process, but more like a nurturing process until they're ready to go. And by the way, with digital, you can pixel and you know cookie. You've heard the term cookie. If they visit your website, you can now retarget them. You know that they're interested in, in your product. And you could if you capture their email address, you can use that for following up as well as targeting them in uh, advertising and marketing across the web in a very, very surgical way. It's not mass market anymore.
0: It allows you to reach out to just those 200 people. Yeah. All right. So I'm sold. I want to jump in to digital marketing. Mm-hmm. What do you recommend? Am I go to a digital marketing agency or work with like industry focused, like a, like digital platforms like Agilis here? Like it's it's more, they know the industry. What do you recommend? Well, it
1: really depends on the level of expertise in your organization. But for most people, they want to get tools that help them get where they're going. They, want to, they don't want to have another team to consult or deal with. And what I find is uh, really funny is people think, well, I could do that. But the question always becomes like, would you? And the reason you generally hire an agency, for example, to buy advertising is because they're good at it. They do it at scale. They can do it quickly. They don't have to relearn things. And they can actually maybe learn things from other places and bring them back to you. So, Agile is like a, a, a purpose-built tool for this. And unless you want to develop those internal capabilities and all the associated hassles of having a you in another group, uh, if you are you know, very digitally savvy and you have the ability to do this, and you think your team members can manage this themselves, then you know by all means, it's never a, a bad idea. I think what we want to do though is really you know self-assess and say, is this really another responsibility we can? give our team that they'll execute on or, or will this go on the pile of this would be nice but so i think what you can get with a solution that's purpose built is all the things that you'd have to do anyway to customize a more general solution in the first place
0: yeah yeah i mean as kind of a uh, like i run my show and stuff and i i know that i can either have other people do a portion do, do their portion really well or i can do a bunch of different things at like 30% capacity, but it shows. So here's my, so we're gonna move on to Q&A in just a minute. I got one last question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, How do people contact you? Um, if they have any like sort of questions or they want uh, to, to, to get your expertise, how do they contact you? And then any other like final thoughts you have before we jump into Q&A? Well, uh, certainly they can reach out to me
1: through my uh, my Columbia address, for example, and I'll uh, I'll put that in there into the chat window.
0: This will get be cool. funny, by the way, if you said uh, you just have to mail me a letter. I don't have. Yeah, it's a fax me. Media. Fax
1: yeah. me anytime. Uh, no, it's uh I'm putting in my Columbia address. This is sort of for my for my professor business, and you of course could reach out to our, our hosts. So they'll be happy to connect us. Um, I did want to mention something you said though. Uh, you you do a lot of work in entertainment, but you would never. I imagine your website is hosted by a major service or on WordPress or something, where is that? Uh, Yeah, Squarespace. Okay, so you use a professional that's known for good design, mobile friendliness, adaptability, you could could figure out how to program your own website and learn HTML, it's not complicated, but that would waste a ton of time and there's no competitive advantage in doing it. So for you, that's like a complete non-starter. You didn't develop your own video hosting server, you just put it on either professional service or maybe even YouTube, right? We're not creating our own Facebook. We take advantage of what's out there. There's infrastructure out there that is customized and optimized to help us be discovered and shared. So we don't have to create all the tools. We can simply take what's there, put them together in a way that's useful for us. So it's something you should not, not only not be shy about doing, but embrace the fact that we've finally reached the point in the internet where we have people who specialize in helping us do our thing. Now with Amazon, you might say, well, they they might even compete with you too. But if you're uh, if Amazon's selling chemicals, we've got a whole nother discussion to, to talk about <laughs> unless the company is actually, you know, direct competition. There's not even a question. It's it's buying the right tools for the job.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing you're, you're saying, it seems like is like in the old days, traditional marketing, it was the it was the huge companies that had huge budgets that could reach people. And yep. now it's not that digital is more difficult, is that it's more accessible for all of us to reach people. Okay. So exactly here we right. go, we're going into, into Q&A, it's 9.33, uh, excuse me, 10.33 Eastern time. Um, here's some, uh, some questions from folks, let's get it started. Can you give us an example of a laggard industry in B2B industrial materials that transitioned from being completely offline to majorly online in recent years? Oof,
1: that's tough, I would say that um, almost all of them you know, there, there's, a, there's a famous quote by a science fiction writer who says, the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. So for every person you point to as like a real cutting edge player, there's somebody who's still whipping out like a literal Rolodex and making their sales calls. So I would say uh, when I look at particularly laggard industries, I have to say I, I'll pick on healthcare again, because that one is, um, it's easy to make the excuse that we have so many regulations and there's people's lives at stake even when they're talking about things like eliminating paperwork and stuff that's pretty bread and butter at this point, like there's no reason, even within a form that you should enter the same information six different times. And yet we've all been to a doctor's office where we're like, I just filled out the same thing on the previous page of your digital website. Like, why is this happening? It's insane. So these days, it's not just, um, it's more about differences in the peers within an industry. For every industry you give me, I can point to someone who's cutting edge and doing great, and perhaps a digital challenger. Uh, whereas, you know, the places where we see true lagging is often where there is regulatory complexity, and that's the trifecta: healthcare, financial services, and usually dealing with children. So, if you are selling chemicals to children, we we have to have another talk. But uh, unless you're in the financial services or healthcare business, generally there's no reason regulation is usually gonna be something that's not gonna to apply to the digital distribution of the information, but rather the uses.
0: Yeah, that, uh, yeah. Going where you want? Yeah, and another thing I, I hear you saying throughout this is there's, there's making the jump, there's doing digital, and then there's doing digital well, and those are two different things. So anyone can go into digital and do it half-hearted and it doesn't get you anywhere. So, okay, so next question. Well, it would get you a little further than doing
1: nothing. But yeah. you know the, the the problem with that kind of uh, question is I do get afraid that people will say, "Oh well, I, I better wait until I do it right." And the oh, two sure. things are, you know, first, start with a, with a, with professional help if you need to. I mean the the cost and benefit is just enormous. You you literally have to be discovered in order for even the people who are more savvy and aware of you to consider you seriously. So you need to capture customers. Um, and the uh, the second piece is it's a great way to get 80 or 90% of the way there, as well as get your teams comfortable with all the things we're talking about. Because most of this resistance isn't gonna come from someone listening right now. These are the people who get it already. And they're like, what kind of arguments can I bring back to my organization that basically resists any project as the flavor of the month? And that's very classic with digital change of any kind. So what you need to do is give them baby steps, easy to adopt steps, so that once they're using these tools, No one could seriously say, well, I've used Microsoft Word, but you know what? I remember that typewriter with the correction ribbon and it was just so comforting. I want to go back to that. Once people are using digital tools, there's no realistic chance they're going to go back. There's certain things that you have to do all or nothing, which are like these big systems, but we've already seen the sales teams fight us about Salesforce and then grudgingly admit they love it because it's great for them. We need to provide tools that help people do their jobs better, not reach goals that are sort of nebulous. So when they sell more, When they're getting more good leads, when they're reaching people they never could before, when customers are coming more informed and saying, you know, I saw your product and it looks like just what I need, instead of having to spend one or two calls explaining why they should be considered, then they're going to ask you for more tools. They're not going to say, no, 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 we're just fine.
0: Yeah. yeah, Okay, so there are a lot of tools available for digital marketing. This is the next question. Many of them are offered as part of enterprise platforms like Marketing Cloud from Salesforce. How do I choose the right platform slash tool for my business? Okay, so choosing a tool
1: is, uh, you know, there's two ways of doing it. You could say, here's the list of things I need and really go very focused, like to a custom sort of solution in a way. But um, often what you'll find is that whenever you're in a big organization, you end up with a checklist. This is, this, I work with a lot of education folks and that's one of the problems with the tools that end up uh, being you know, adopted by slow moving you know, schools and things. They go through the checklist and make sure the tool has every one of the possible features out there. What you really need to think of is what do I need? What am I gonna actually use? Because you don't need, you know, uh, the, for example, the fax capability or whatever it might be. You need to focus on what's gonna actually move uh, your business forward. So if your group is saying, here's where our gaps are, don't start with the idea of like, can we buy a solution that not only solves that, but covers every other possible stakeholder in the, uh, in the world? Because in digital, it's possible to move faster and the platforms themselves and the tools themselves are going to evolve to meet your needs. So what a lot of people maybe trained in the old school of purchasing, even software will sometimes do is say, what, you know, what do you have? And never think of like, well, what's on the roadmap? You know, if it's going to take us six months to buy and implement this software, software companies are going to probably roll out three new features between now and then. So you may just
0: find that all the things are, are there already. Yeah, it is a different, a different world where there are new, the software does have new capabilities and those get added in a way and you're able to add them as opposed to like, oh no, I blo- I've bought I bought this product and now I can't adapt and they've moved on. But okay, so next question. So lots of these tools are designed for the B2C world. How do we make sure that we are not overdoing it or over communicating with our customers? That's a great question. Like sometimes I'll get on an email list and, and they're emailing me every, every day or something because I bought a pair of shoes a year ago. And I'm like, no, 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 you're no, no, no. That's too much. Like, how do you know what that feel is? And it might be different in B2B.
1: Well, the, uh, the perhaps disappointing answer is that you can pretty much email people all the time it, it has to approach the level of being so annoying and irrelevant that they will actually unsubscribe. It's better to think of them as, ha- as making the information available. Email isn't as interruptive. It's not like you can't avoid this television commercial. It's the difference between a skippable commercial and a regular commercial where you're pri- providing this information. Remember that unless it's consumed, it's not going to be something that they make a judgment on. It's simply available. And sometimes actually, you know, I always argue in email marketing an unopened email maybe just a perfectly designed email where you've told them what to expect in there and they don't need that information today. So if you're not in the market for shoes and you don't open up that 20% or free shipping offer, that's not actually a failure. You're communicating your message and the person's making an effective judgment. What we need to do is think less about will I disturb my customers? And it's particularly important, not not that that's not a bad thing, but if we take a consultative approach, all this additional content and, and stuff is not advertising. It's the broadest sense marketing in that it's making people aware of our solution to their problem. So people like help with decisions they need to make. They don't want to be sold in the same way. Now, most of your salespeople, if they, uh, and by the way, this consultative selling approach isn't is something I made up. IBM does this. I worked at IBM for a, a bit. IBM and other large complex organizations with solutions that require sales and consultative approaches they feel if you have a viable product that's a that's a really a good answer for this, if you walk people through the decision process, they're going to get to the conclusion, you know, with you that you are a good solution for their problems. You're not trying to convince them. It's not like a consumer purchase, which is a perhaps a lifestyle purchase, or does this pair of shoes go with my outfit? These are much more considered decisions. So a decision that's based in research, once you know what the factors are, just like your, your sales process does now. You can emphasize the reasons you should win.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of what you're saying. Like, don't worry if you're doing too much. Worry about where you're coming from with what you're putting out.
1: Yeah. People always say, well, what if I post the same information in three places and they see it everywhere? We should be so lucky that we get that kind of frequency. What we find is that most people have a preferred way that they consume information. Some people search on Google. Some people like to email or use Slack or social media. They're going to get the information through their primary method. But what you're trying to do is not um, you're not necessarily putting yourself in front of them. You're making yourself available to them. It's an inbound approach. So this isn't interruptive advertising in traditional media sense. This is discoverability. And the more information you provide out there to answer the basic questions, then there's less of that to be completed when, and they more likelihood that they will turn into customers when they do finally start that salesy discussion with you.
0: Is there is there a simple top of mind argument with that too?
1: Yeah, well that's true too. I mean, they have to know you exist to become part of the consideration set. I mean, the classic uh, funnel is awareness, you know, value consideration, and uh, and purchase, right? So if uh, if you think about the process of deciding, they need to know you're part of the process. Um, we've all had a situation where we got involved with um, with a potential customer too late. And no matter how much better we are, sometimes these institutional processes of big customers, you can't get involved maybe till the next purchasing cycle, which could be a year later. This is how strong those institutional norms can be. So by providing information everywhere and being top of mind, we ensure that we at least get into the process, which is often, you know, you can't win the race if you're not running it, right? So you have to
0: get into the process. Yeah, okay. All right, so next question. How do you compete in search engine optimization for commodity products? Well, you know, there's there's so many things that you think about that are uh, commodity products, and
1: yet there seem to be great brands out there connotated with value or quality. What are you competing on now? Well, a lot of these questions, you, you know, that they're not digital specific. These are the messages we use in the marketplace today. So we simply need to make sure that those are accessible and discoverable. Are you best value? Are you the best quality. If you have a commodity product, what is it that differentiates you? Is it faster delivery? Is it more reliability? Is it better support? All of these are the kinds of things that you communicate during the process uh, in any more, uh, more difficult to compare product. If there's not a lot of vast differences, compete on the things around it. And once your brand is known for these things, then you can simply make people more aware of your brand. So people with a powerful brand talk about how it's the Amazon basics, not the generic, you know, cheaper version. They say Amazon selling these paper towels, for example. Um, So using brand when you have it and using a reinforcement of those brand values you're trying to build when you don't.
0: Okay. All right. We got three more questions at the moment, although a couple more might come in. Um, How do you identify the right customer group in the digital world, particularly in B2B space?
1: That's actually a a great question, it really boils down to targeting. If you were going to try to reach people, you'd have to describe them. And the good thing in digital is we have not just demographics, which is um, for better force, it's the way we used to do things in the past. Our customers are, you know, uh, men 35 to 45 with, uh, you know, in this following industry or area, we can now describe a little bit more specifically things about them, like they um, they have the business title purchasing manager for one of the following list of companies. These are the kinds of things we can actually target in digital. We can buy, uh, you know, buy advertising that targets just those people. Well, you know, we may actually have a list of all the attendees at a big com- conference and their emails. Those emails can be used as essentially what we call a custom audience. So the message we put out on Facebook could be, could be only the people who attended a chemical industry conference. Sure, they're on Facebook, but they're the right people. We know who they are. Another thing to think of is behavioral intent. And this is this may sound like a big fancy way, but it's basically, we look at where people are going online and we don't have to do this because Facebook and all these other guys do it. And if they're constantly going to uh, chemical industry sites, we will know that they have an interest in that area. Perhaps the best way is if we are providing this great valuable content, like a buyer's checklist to uh, all the considerations you need to buy the following kinds of things. Well, those sort of buying guides are extremely valuable, but only to people who are interested in the product. So they self-select to a landing page where we can, you know, pixel them and cookie them and track them on the internet and remarket to them. Or they actually download it and give us their email, sometimes their cell phone, and we can contact them, follow up with them and say, hey, would you like to hear more and schedule a demo? I actually have a client right now where we provide great content. And instead of saying, you know, a salesperson will call, we say sign up for a free expert consultation they're essentially doing the same thing. They're screening that lead to see if it's in fact a potential real customer ready to buy or not. But the way we ask the questions is more helpful. And as a partner in figuring out what they need rather than a sales qualification list. And then we're done with you. Uh, And that actually goes a long way to when they're ready to buy, then they come back.
0: Yeah. So uh, tell me, tell me if you agree with this or not, I'm not the one giving advice, but, um, but, uh, for my television show we've done we've done a lot of marketing on facebook and um, and then recently have done some on LinkedIn and uh, so amazed by how how drilled down you can get in terms of like this job title in this industry would would you recommend like people that haven't done that almost like go in and and create an ad they aren't going to use, but just to see how drilled down you can get like to kind of like to witness that, to see like, oh yeah, you really, I really can find the purchaser who does this in this industry. There's actually
1: uh, such an incredible level of targeting that um, simply being aware of what is possible sometimes can change minds. So I actually do this in my executive education classes. It's a simple exercise. We'll actually use the Facebook interface and you can go in and pick people who love motorcycles from Wyoming. It's pretty amazing to see the level of specificity you can get. Now, there's a lot of limitations to this. This is a lot of it's inferred. And it's essentially like if you pick too many things, it's like catalog shopping. When you try to, for people who might have done online dating, it's like the worst kind of catalog shopping. They try to pick all the features they want. And there's like one person who fits that match. (laughs) You got to be a a little broader than that. But the reality is um, we can find people in ways that were literally unimaginable and traditional marketers may not even realize are possible now. And more importantly, content will actually have them find us so we can let them pick themselves out of a crowd. And this applies to even uh, products that you might say, well, those are pretty boring products. Nobody's going to be looking for that stuff. Uh, A great example is there's there's an old saying nobody buys a mortgage. They buy a house. The Mortgage is a means to get the house, right? So when you're a a title insurance company, you have a really difficult job because nobody cares. But what do those guys all sponsor? they sponsor those silly rent versus buy calculators on every real estate website sponsored by first American title or whoever it is. Mm -hmm. What you find is that the people who are thinking about buying are using those calculators. They self-select into that simple, easy tool. And then from then on, they've associated that brand for the further part of the process.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So we got three questions left. Got about 11 minutes, I would say. So, We'll see if we can get to all of them or where we get, but um, next question is B2B commercial buyers are not impulsive buyers. How important is it to adapt to each type of buyer, say technical versus commercial?
1: I I think I see where the the question's going here. And this is really about understanding your sales process. Yeah, nobody's impulse buying bulk chemicals, most likely, right, we we, we should be so lucky. But um, I think what you do is you think about how you understand the sales process now and understand when it goes from um, identifying the potential customers to <clears throat> nurturing and ultimately putting that customer into a more formal sales process. And what you can do is make sure you're tracking the things that lead to victory at the right place. So a qualified lead may be your goal in digital, not a sale. You can potentially close that sale in a digital format, but if what you need to do is pick up that baton with a salesperson and, and run it the rest of that race, um, that's totally legit. So oftentimes in more, more uh, research-driven, uh, formalized processes, it's the, the actual gatekeeper that goes from what we would call MQL, marketing qualified lead, somebody we think could be a potential customer, to a sales qualified lead, which is when we've confirmed, in fact, that this person could be a buyer. And it's at that point where we, from a marketing point of view, we might say, we're, as long as we're getting good qualified leads, we're doing our job well. And I think that's what they're they're looking for.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like kind of setting the right expectations. This isn't going to necessarily, this action isn't going to result in a sale, but it will set, put us on the right road to get there.
1: Exactly. Uh, it's about the marketing funnel. It's just a numbers game is what the marketing funnel says. And remember the point of having a huge top of the funnel is that we know at every single step of the way, a lot of people are not going to move on. That's a normal and accepted thing. The reason we track that is only to get better at what we do at moving people through the stages. If sales is closing you know, uh, 50% of the folks, that could mean sales is amazing, or it could mean that we're only handing them such teed up warm leads, that they're not having to stretch themselves. So it's all a balance. It's not about an absolute number,
0: but a relative performance number. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, this is, I imagine uh, two left. I imagine this is an important question for, for some folks here. For international audience, is it necessary to support content in multiple languages?
1: Well, this is a decision that is not a digital question, right? It's a decision about where are your customers. And the real critical piece here is, first of all, you want your content in the language your customers speak and do their work in. So we, we've we always found it easy to default to English in many cases, because it's in multinational companies, that's often the, uh, the language that the company speaks within, because it's the one that they share. But if you're looking for buyers in big markets where... Uh, maybe the executives who face internationally speak English fluently, but some of their teams may not. You have to think about the uh, the cost benefit ratio there. And interestingly, for example, let's say you're doing business in Brazil um, and you need to be in Brazilian Portuguese. The question we're asking is, is it worth it? Right? We're already creating the content unless the content is so local about this particular market um, that the content cost itself needs to be taken into account. If I've written an amazing buyer's guide to a particular chemical, it's the cost of translation we're talking about, right? And making it available digitally on the Portuguese version of our website. In some places, we're required as a function of doing business to have a functional website in the local language. So it may be, are we worried about translating everything or taking that piece of content marketing that we spent a lot of time thinking about developing and just paying a translator to put it in uh, and you want a good one because it's going to be a technical thing, but uh, to put it into a good format for being discovered digitally, Brazilian Portuguese or French or Chinese or whatever the language of our potential customers is. The real challenge here is a lot of us look at our current customer base and we think, how do we get more people like them? And what we're forgetting is as the world um, has become digital, the borders and you know the the world is flat, as that the famous book said people can buy cross border more easily than ever before. So we have the potential of getting customers who maybe don't look like our existing customers. And that means we have to take a flyer and try to expand our horizons and say, who could we capture if we did offer this that we're not capturing now? Seeing what's not there is a lot harder than doing what we did in, the, in a new format.
0: So just to clarify, Jeremy Kagan, um, Ivy League professor, you're speaking metaphorically, you don't think the world is flat. I definitely do not.
1: Okay, uh, the, That's the title of a book. And it's, uh, it was a book basically talking about how um, all of our modern communications technologies around the internet have reduced uh, essentially the quote unquote distance from things in the world in a profound way. And we're just seeing that. I mean, so many of the things we, we do now um, simply wouldn't have been possible even on just a very micro level. Uh, and you know, industries like uh, chem- chemical industry is not immune from this. We can do yeah. more cross-border work. We can find customers where we never could before, even non-traditional customers, where you know there were before it was a, a middleman business. And now we may be able to go around and go direct, or go to find customers deeper in an organization instead of going through the purchasing department. This is giving us opportunities where the gatekeepers maybe don't have as much power, and we can go and find the people who might, uh, might want to have a relationship directly with us. So I, I imagine a division where they've been forced, they're a small division of a global company, they've been forced to go through global global procurement and only work with an approved supplier list. Now your product may be better for them and now they can find you and work directly with you and maybe make the case for an exception or simply you know, find a way uh, to work with you directly. Okay. These are the kinds of things that this enables.
0: Yeah, most definitely. Okay, last question. Got a couple minutes left. How critical is marketing or content creation when it comes to retention of B2, B2B buyers? Sorry, I'll say that again. How critical is marketing or content creation when it comes to the retention of B2B buyers? How different is it from marketing for acquisition? Uh, it's different.
1: Um, acquisition, you're answering you know different set of questions. Retention is about engagement and being top of mind. And you know fundamentally, if your product is solving the problem at a you know, fair price and they're happy, customers won't you know, be saying, oh, but I didn't get the newsletter this week. But the same content you're creating for uh, potential new customers is going to be useful for those customers to see that you're out there, you're tackling new problems, that you're uh, aware of the changes in the industry and in the world. And uh, these things can work with each other. It, it's also true that some of your co- customers will present you with the best content. Uh, if you can highlight a good customer who has solved a, a really unique and interesting problem that you think others might have, not only do they feel good, your customer finally gets some recognition, they can share that uh, blog post with their boss, but the other people in the world who are looking to solve that same problem are going to say, wow, I know those guys, and you know Bob over there, he's always been a forward thinker, and look, he's featured here solving the problem with his partner XYZ, and that's, that's a great way to uh, make your existing customers happy and attract new customers in one single, um, single way to do it. So content marketing applies to both. Retention, which I would also call, it's really engagement, it's about staying top of mind and keeping your brand associated with new and exciting. Um, that's a great point, great point.
0: All right, well, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. This was very insightful and I think it'll help out a lot of people.
1: Thank you. And I'm actually putting a link to my uh, textbook in here. I just found it uh, on my publisher's website. In case you're curious about that, um, my uh, my contact information is there as well. Uh, I hope that was uh, a little illuminating for everyone, but there's a lot more to go. So definitely uh, get the right tools for the job. And if you're here already, you're definitely thinking in the right direction. So
0: thanks for All right. listening, everyone. Yep. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next month.